And where's that? Um, outside of Pleasantville. What's outside of Pleasantville? Nothing! You lose! Good day, sir! And welcome to the Cinema Psych Podcast, the podcast where psychology meets film. I am your host, Dr. Alex Swan, and uh, I am talking to you on a new microphone. Hopefully it sounds really good. Um, I've sort of reached the end of my microphone um, grubbing, so hopefully this is the end of it and uh, everyone likes what they hear. So today's episode is uh, going to be a whimsical journey into the land of black and white television. No, I'm not talking about WandaVision. (laughs) Timely reference. Uh, I'm talking about the 1998 film Pleasantville. Starring, uh, you know, William H. Macy or William H. Muffman, as I prefer. Uh, Joan Allen's in it. Toby Maguire in one of his, um, you know, adolescent into adulthood uh, transition movies. Reese Witherspoon at the beginning of her career. Uh, uh, Jeff Daniels is also there. Uh, it's a great cast. It really is. Uh, Gary Ross wrote and directed it. So, uh, yeah, we're going to and, and you know, it's probably not thought of as a movie for psychology, but there is a lot in it and there's a lot in it to unpack. Maybe not back in 1998, but definitely through 2021 lenses, we can definitely see the value in this particular film for um, teaching and learning about psychology from movies. And I think I have a really good guest host for you all in this episode because he is fantastic. So without further ado, my my phrases, let's get jump. Let's let's just get jump into it. Yeah. My guest host today is Dr. Will Ryan. Will is an assistant professor in the psychology department at the University of Toronto, where he teaches health psychology, social psychology of attitudes, positive psychology, and organizational behavior. In his research, Will studies how social constructs and interactions support and thwart health and wellness. This includes a focus on reducing negative attitudes toward and promoting flourishing among members of marginalized groups. Perfect guests for this discussion. Will, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on, Alex. I'm really excited to be here. I'm super happy to have you on. Uh, before we jump into discussing Pleasantville, of course, I asked this uh, general question to all of my guests. Um, so first, I wanted to ask what your thoughts are on film in general 
And then, you know, because we have a t- bit of a teaching bent on this show, uh, if you use film in your teaching or if you don't, what um, what else would you use film for? Uh, to be honest, so I'm not I'm not one of those cool professors who uses film as part of my courses. That said, I do think that this film would work really well as a basis for discussion, uh, particularly in a course like social psychology or an attitudes course. And so now that we're talking about it, I do kind of want to work that in in a future assignment. Uh, but I think it could really work well for those courses uh, because it's a film that is in some ways really tame in its content, but also really provocative. And so I think uh, for teaching, it could work well for that. Uh, and so there's also yeah. a lot to talk about there because of that. And so it, it deals right. with these these issues we're going to talk about today of identity, coming of age, authenticity, but also authoritarianism and mm-hmm. oppression uh, right. and you know racial violence, things like that. And so... Uh, the metaphors in this film aren't exactly subtle, but they do leave a lot of room to talk about, uh, you know, how we're going to interpret those. And so there's a lot to, for students to talk about that. There. Right, right. And and uh, that to be able to take a film and just apply it to a bunch of stuff within a course, I think, is is the best of all worlds from somebody who uses films in, in most of his classes myself, um, like to have a like we could keep going back to Pleasantville like you know you do a couple of weeks and you talk about these things and you're like oh yeah remember Pleasantville like that like that's really cool that is really cool and so I'm so glad you brought this film to the show so what would you say brought Pleasantville um more specifically um to the discussion today I mean, so when I was thinking about what I could pick for this episode, I was trying to think about you know what I do teach and what I could talk about. And so certainly this has the themes that we mentioned, but also it's a film that still really relates to uh, so much that uh, is going on and is relevant still today, even though it was filmed yeah. 23 years 23 later. years. I mean, or 23 years ago. Yeah. Right. Right. So I think especially when I teach attitudes, students often say, well, you know, so much has changed since this paper came out <laughs> right. in 1998. It's so old. But right. so many of these main big questions are still relevant. Certainly a lot has changed and thank goodness it has. But so many yeah. of the things that society is grappling with has absolutely not. And there's some really poignant quotes in the movie that you know, make that right. really clear. Right. From even from looking at a perspective of 1998 to the 1950s or whenever the time period is set, I'm not entirely sure, late 50s, something like that, Mm -hmm. um, to 1998, right, as Gary Ross wrote it, you know, and then now fast forwarding again, 23 more years, it's like, oh, man, we're still talking about the same stuff. This is rough. So, you know, the, since you have mentioned that there is a ton of stuff to talk about in this movie, let's just jump right into it. And I think one of the major themes of the movie that smacks you right over the head with um, its, as you said, not so subtle uh, allegory metaphor is um, the psychological concept of a self-identity. So you want to explain um, what self-identity is and maybe some examples from the film, Will? Yeah, so certainly there's a lot of different ways that this is uh, defined in the research, but often when we talk about self-dash, by that I mean you know, yeah. concepts where there's a uh, self in front, you know, self-esteem, self-this, right. and so self-identity is really these different 
aspects of the self, different roles people might have, different mm -hmm. uh, ways they might express themselves uh, around others. And so it's uh, there's many different parts of the self that are these identities. Uh, and yeah. so, those, so I guess I should say, to, to say that better, the identities are the different you know, aspects of the self that you are expressing in uh, the world and the different roles that you take on and the different uh, relationships that you might have. Yeah, yeah. So um, what identity identities do we see in the movie and and um, what what maybe shifts for those characters? Yeah, so, I mean, there's re they really talk about a, a bunch of different identities. I mean, the, it's the main arc of really just coming of age and finding sure. your identity and place in the world. There's also uh, sexual identity and sexual mm -hmm. liberation and those uh, aspects there. Um, and so really, I would say those are the two main ones that I think that they work with. Yeah. And uh, the movie's main characters, David um, slash Bud, played by uh, Toby Maguire, and then um, Jennifer slash uh, Mary Sue, um, played by Reese, Reese Witherspoon, are high school students. Um, I, f and I feel like uh, Mary Sue is older than Bud. Slash. I thought they were twins. They, uh, oh, so they were in, twins. Oh, yeah, there's yeah, an that's right, opening that's right. scene where uh, yeah. I love her. I love her line where we're only related on our on my parents' side. Right. Uh, okay. Yeah. I did. Yeah. I I do remember that. You're right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's kind of hard to tell what grade they're in in high school, but it's definitely clear that they are in high school, and uh, uh, David and Jennifer in you know I guess uh, concurrent 1998 high school. And then um, in the 1950s, as Bud and Mary Sue, they're also a seemingly the same age and in the same grade in high school. So um, they're having to deal with all of the high school uh, BS, as I like to call it, because that's what it was for me. Oh, yes. Same. <laughs> so, I mean, like, imagine having to do deal with all of that, uh, but also in a weird, weird sitcom 1950s tragic land where everything is tragic until right, but then things that's start one to of become the, colors. That's one of the interesting things though, right? So both sure, of them yeah. sort of find themselves in that world. And so although it's a really a repressive world in many ways, it takes yeah. them, you know, going back in time to this place to really break out of the roles that they've had in high school. As she yeah. says to him at the end, like I, I tried uh, slutty and that got old but it's really hard once you're pegged as a role in high school to break out of that and same right. for him with his role as a nerd he's trying to you know ask out this popular girl and that's just not going to happen for him there but he's able to find that confidence and that um, yeah you know what he's looking for in those um and those um relationships in the in the in um, pleasantville right and he becomes the uh the the hero of the story essentially uh, he starts out as a as a weakling, classic uh, Arthurian character. Um, starts out as a weakling and then becomes, you know, victorious at the end. So yeah, it's a. I, I think it's a. His arc is really good. Um, I don't know so much about Jennifer's arc. Uh, the the whole you know slutty stereotype and then like oh. All she needs to do is read a book like it was a bit pigeonholy for sure. Uh, and then she becomes an academic uh, or 
academically engaged. And you get a little glimpse that she lives her life and ends up having a, a having at least one kid inside the TV show, which I don't know how that makes sense, but okay. Um, but I, I do like both of their stories. I, I think my favorite arc, though, my favorite self-identity is um, Jeff Daniels' character, and, I'm, and his name escapes me right now. Is he the? Is he Mr. Johnson? The Mr. The, the yeah, the diner owner. Yes. 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 He's 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 my favorite too. Yeah, his arc is phenomenal because not only is it um, learning to do things himself, but like even bigger than that, he gets to he gets to be um, he gets to do what he wants to do. He gets to paint. And be with people that he enjoys. And I was just, it's such a magical um, character development. And um, sort of self-reflective uh, for me was the getting to do the things that you um, that you like to do, which is like the re- whole reason why I do this podcast um, every few weeks with um, some of my most favorite people like it's fun it's good like i get to break out of academia not so much i still have a toe in mm-hmm. but not and but not like be like oh you got to read all of these papers and then write all this stuff like no i just want to do something fun sometimes so that yeah. really rem- uh, uh, um, resonated resonated thank you i'll turn off I'll never be able to do that. Well, you just started. I mean, you can't do it now. No, no, no. That, that's not it. Just where am I going to see colors like that? Must be awful lucky to see colors like that. I'll bet they don't know how lucky they are. So, um, pivoting now from um, self-identity, because... Uh, a lot of the self-identity stuff that does happen in the movie is couched within the setting. And the setting is a repressive show, as you said, um, based on and in loving homage to shows like Leave it to Beaver, um, especially with um, Bud being named Bud. Uh, and then June Cleaver sort of being the archetype archetype for Joan Allen's Betty character. So we have that homage and then we have like other send ups to things like the Andy Griffith show because Don Knotts plays the magical TV repairman who sends the kids into the uh, TV show. So you have these really what. I guess we could call wholesome uh, and traditional uh, society uh, where nothing bad happens, uh, but not in the way that Hot Fuzz would. uh, This is a deep cut for all my Hot Fuzz fans that would Hot Fuzz would leave you to lead you to believe in that town where no crime happened, but they were just hiding it all the time. There was like there in Pleasantville, there's literally no crime. Right. The worst thing that happens is that the cats are getting stuck in the trees. Yes. That's 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 all that the fire department <laughs> has to do. That that is literally the worst crisis that they have. And they set that up pretty right. early there. Yeah, they they set that up like within minutes of them arriving into 
into the TV show. And uh, when there's an actual fire, they have no idea how to deal with it. It's, it's great. It's great. And so because we can talk about the TV show as a reflection, a 1990s reflection of the 1950s, there is a lot of stuff there about the 1950s and what sort of gender roles people had at the time. Sure, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming there are better examples in media for this particular, um, for this particular piece of psychology, but I think it wrapped inside and there being a commentary on it makes it, um, makes it a nice addition to this uh, de- uh, narrative. And um, one of those things is the roles of the people. So um, what are some of the roles that uh, these folks have in the TV show, Will? I mean, I think the first and most salient one is the one of the mother uh, and that she is providing for her family and you know, really serving her husband. Bud, Mary Sue, your breakfast is getting cold. It can't be possible. Well, come on, kids. You're not going off to school without a hot breakfast inside you. Forward march. you in that sweater, Mary Sue. It's so flattering. Thanks. Morning, kids. Better get a move on or you'll be late for school. I don't believe this. Neither do I. Well, come on, dig in. I put blueberries in them just the way you like. Well, come on, sweetie. It's getting late. Actually, hungry? <laughs> <laughs> Nonsense, young lady. You're going to start your day off with a nice big breakfast. Here we go. Sit down. Here's some pancakes and eggs, sausage, and some good crisp bacon. And of course, a ham steak. You lead on up, then it's right off to school. Hurry, hurry. That he he frequently uh, in that world uh, just hollers for her, right? And then she comes. He doesn't get he doesn't uh, get up to go get her. He just continues to to yell for her to come and yelling, "Honey, I'm home." Uh, and so she really has this role of serving them. Uh, mm-hmm. And feeding them and caring for them, and in some ways, right, that's a really loving thing, and that's what really I think draws uh, David Bud into this world uh, when he's watching the show initially. Right, right? he's really getting some you know, comfort and connection there. But that's that's uh, one of the main roles there for her, and then the father as the mm-hmm. provider, uh, and so as her partner in that. Um, so those are the really clear roles, I would say. Um, right, and 
what does uh, then Bud's, well, sorry, David's arrival and then also Mary Sue's arrival do to those roles? Because they're no longer their programmed Bud and Mary Sue. They are now these sentient kids with their the baggage and memories that they've brought now. Right. And so they definitely uh, sh- shake that up. And I think if anything, uh, Mary Sue or Jennifer the most in introducing uh, her mother and others in the town to their sexuality and really shaking yeah. up that role. So that's one role that nobody has. Right. right. In this, so that they make that very clear with the separate beds and so although there are children it's it's not clear how they appeared there uh and so they uh that's not a role that's available to anyone and she she makes that uh that part of people's self available to them including the mother and that really uh, shakes things up yeah and so now with the idea in the american 1950s of pure family values what would we call that today that would be that would be subsumed within the patriarchy right quote yeah i'm gonna think i would say so yeah so what about the patriarchy then is um threatened by jennifer's uh sexual exploration and expansion to other that's that's an odd pairing of words <laughs> expansion of of her sexual sexuality to I the mean rest she literally the... blows up a tree with it so I think that's yeah. a fair word <laughs> I mean that blows true. up but sets it on fire it sets again, it on fire right again they're not subtle with the metaphors no 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 especially not that one right uh, so what is what is the ex- uh, explosion of a sexuality mean for the town and patriarch and the patriarchy? Well, so it does a couple things, right? So it's not just about the sex itself, but there really seems to be a giving of this agency there, and that, and particularly because uh, you know, at first when she, the mother learns about sex, she's sad and disappointed because she says your father would never want to do something like that, and Mary Sue yeah. comes back with, well, you know, you don't. There's ways to enjoy yourself, mom, without dad. And that's, I think that's a big important piece of her finding herself is that she finds that she doesn't need him for her, for her, her fulfillment. And it's the sexual, but also the other. And that's, I think, what empowers her to then ultimately leave. Uh, Because it's not that he's a bad person or a bad man or anything, but she's not, that's not the role that she wants is as his uh, sort of person serving him at his back yeah. hall. Yeah, I was I was just thinking server, right? Server, yeah. And um and I think the colorization uh has a lot to play in the advancing sexuality of the of the film, right? Because young women tend to become colorized first. Mm-hmm. Um and but you know, I think it's actually kind of funny that um, the colorization doesn't occur for Jennifer, Jennifer first, um, even though she's the first person to have sex uh, in the um, in the in the television reality, and that's because the colorization represents going back to self identity represents the um, realization of someone's quote unquote true identity. And she didn't get that identity until she read a book. Yeah, that there has to be. And fell, 
and yeah. fell asleep studying. Like she literally did the thing that she was making fun of at the beginning of the of the movie. But it took a sexy book to get her to do it. <laughs> so they couldn't even give her that. <laughs> Had to beat D.H. D. H. Lawrence, which is a sexy book. I will say I stayed up late reading that, too. Uh-huh. Uh, but. Um, <laughs> the point is she was reading. <laughs> right. But you're right. It That's is a really that, low bar. I feel bad now. Yeah. No, but it, is a, but it is a good point that she doesn't turn color right away and neither does Skip, right? He starts to right. see color right away. He sees that red red rose and things in the town mm-hmm. start to turn. But I think that it's not just the right. It's not just the sex. There has to be that right. emotionality behind it as well. And uh, certainly he's he has his mind blown. But I don't think there's this there's the soul or the authenticity piece in that for him. Yeah, yeah, I I agree with that because um of the women that we do see uh in the movie that get uh, that are colorized before. Um, some of the more uh, some of the ma- more main characters, um, we don't know too much about them. And so we don't know what it is they're exploring about themselves. But it, yeah, it makes a lot of sense that um, that it's it has to be a, a, a deeper connection with something about themselves to turn them into color. Well, yeah. I think it speaks to the one of the themes in the film of sexuality and women's sexuality as a liberation. And that was something right. that was happening at the time that they're throwing us back to Mm -hmm. you know it's not that men's sexuality can't be deep and soulful too but it wasn't a rebellious thing at the time in the same way a breaking out of the roles and norms and so Mm. i think that's Mm -hmm. what makes it a bit different there in that and certainly it turns some uh, some of the you know young men colors too we assume because we don't know what they're you know they're all turning colors up at a lover's lane but right um, right right that's where all of the that's where all of the colorized people um, congregate and uh, hang out by the um, hang out by the the lake or the pond or whatever it is, the body of water and, uh, you know, just canoodle. And it, 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 it must have been something for them. It must have been the thing that they needed. And the men folk of the town don't like it. And I think it's I think it's actually quite telling that far more women and girls become colorized before lots of the men do like not even the teenage boys. A lot of them um, participate in the later sort of vandalization and and um, mayhem and violence toward the color uh, colorized people. Uh, the, and these are just, you know, 17 year old boys. So it's like, wow. There's a 17 year old boy uh, on trial for murder right now. For for an act very similar to what is depicted in this movie. Right. Uh, and they it really hits how, you. Yeah, they definitely show how things can quickly escalate even in this you know perfect world. Uh, that mm-hmm. This threat of change and difference and people becoming colorized uh you know radicalized uh right is uh threatening that it quickly escalates yeah to yeah. violence yeah and i think that um brings us a nice segue into our next piece but we're gonna grab that one right after this quick break hey listener 
Thanks for sticking around this episode. I hope you're enjoying it. Anyway, I need your help in growing this podcast's audience. In past episodes, I've asked you to share this podcast with five of your friends. Let's keep doing that. Share this podcast on social media, especially if you really liked an episode. Share that episode. Tell five of your friends or family if they have an interest in film or psychology, or even better, both. Growing the audience is our goal for the second year of programming, and so we need your help to get that done. Other ways to contribute to the podcast include tips to our PayPal, found on our website, becoming a patron at patreon.com slash cinemapsychpod, rocking some sweet merch from our Spreadshirt shop, and or leaving us a rating or review on your favorite podcast service. Now back to the show. Okay, so as I said before the start of that break there, we that we were talking about how the patriarchy of Pleasantville was sort of um, reaching a boiling point. And uh, it really hits you, the movie hits you over the head with authoritarianism. But Will, you wanted to add to um, add to the patriarchy bit before we jump into the aspects of, of the police state? Yeah, I mean, I think this, this point makes, fits well there too, but it's really uh, just that we were saying that it takes longer for many of the men in Pleasantville to become colorized, but uh, I think it's interesting, you know, who it takes the longest for that to happen to, right? So right. we see Mr. Johnson turn color pretty early and he's he's an artist, right? Art is usually not part of the mainstream, art is counterculture, right. so he's pushing sure. against that and it seems to be particularly the men who are holding more power or who are benefiting from these norms and traditions uh, that are uh, not turning colors. Right. Becoming colorized. Right. And, you know, some of the the younger boys who. Um, who seem to be more in line with the counterculture, sort of the early beginnings of hippie culture, if this is the if this is the mid to late 50s. So, like, you know, those uh, early aspects of the uh, against the man movement idea right so and and that is particularly among individuals uh who did not think authority had the right to do whatever it wanted to do like there were there were limits and there were supposed to be limits and um that the authoritarianism in pleasantville is very staggering and it the mayor uh is uh a basically a wannabe dictator he he strikes me as a guy who uh who gets people's opinions but already knows the opinions and sort of just wants to hear them back at him if that makes any sense like not ov- not super narcissistic not like Donald Trump level narcissism but just like uh a cunning a really jerk cunning. That's enough. I thought I was allowed to defend myself. You're not allowed to lie. I'm not lying. You see those faces up there? They're no different than you are. 
They just happen to see something inside themselves. I said that's enough. You're out of order. Why am I out of order? Because I'm not going to let you turn this courtroom into a circus. Well, I don't think it's a circus, and I don't think they do either. This behavior must stop at once. But see, that's just the point. It can't stop at once because it's in you, and you can't stop something that's inside you. It is not inside me. Oh, sure it is. No, it is not. What do you want to do to me right now? Come on. Everyone is turning colors. Pretty soon, the women could be going off to work while the men stayed at home and cooked. That is not going to happen. But it could happen! No! It could not! I don't know. Will, does that make sense? I think so. I mean, it's hard to, I think it's hard to reach Trump-level narcissism. I think when <laughs> they wrote this, I think, honestly, that's prop, that's kind of what they were trying to write, that they they were, they did write him over the top. So yeah. you know, his, his speech in the bowling alley is, is absurd in, mm-hmm. in how over the top it is. And I think it feels less so now. And I think that's a sad statement on what we've become accustomed to. But right. I think that the, the goal in the writing of that was to make it seem so so extreme that how could you agree with yeah. this right and <laughs> but now we just hear those lines i mean he literally says hold on to the values that made this place great I <laughs> yes mean, we it was re- it re-watching was, it i like spit out what i was drinking i was like oh my gosh just i was this is it's like real. did gary ross predict the future or do people now just watch pleasantville for notes like it's it's very it was very creepy how eerily prescient it was like imagine us having done this like two months ago or three months ago will okay (laughs) oh my god uh and i think the interesting thing is and and i wrote this down in our notes uh the interesting thing is is when he full-on becomes a dictator that's when he becomes colorized like that's when his identity was fully formed he had wanted nothing to do with being colorized and yet he was oh and he was so upset about it too yeah, I think it's also because it's, that's when he really expresses like the real emotion behind what he's doing. Before that, he's pretending it's, you know, for the good of everyone, that it's to yeah. keep things pleasant. But uh, Bud David really forces him to admit that he's angry. Mm-hmm. That this makes him angry, that this is upsetting to him personally. And that's really yeah, I what, think the uh, personally part yeah. turns it for him. Yeah, yeah, that's a good that's a good ad- addition to that, because uh, he he's also written to be a politician and um does the whole politician thing until it, it he no longer can hold in that it is personally personally just burning him up inside right and and uh as you say he just wanted everything to be the same um you uh you mentioned that um, he doesn't get, he doesn't turn colorized until Bud slash David makes him angry. Um, and he, cause he, throughout the entire movie, he's saying things about, you know, let's keep things pleasant. Let's keep things pleasant. Let's keep things pleasant. And it's, it's just a way to shut people down. Right. Right. Definitely. Uh, echoing modern calls for civility. Yes. I would say. 
right? That that's something that we say when it's convenient and it uh, shuts down voices. And that was especially poignant when they're in the courtroom and mm-hmm. Bud asks where his lawyer is. And yeah. the mayor responds that they just want to keep things pleasant. And so pleasantry is, you know, more important than justice. And so yep. who is this pleasant for? But that's always used as the his motive behind everything. Yeah. And, so and admits, I, and yeah, I, that's, I think it's pretty telling that um, everything has to be sunshine and daisies in Pleasantville when life isn't sunshine and daisies, right? If no, you not wanna, at all. And, yeah. If you want to bring, um, if you want to bring Pleasantville to life, it's got to have some badness too. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things I love about Mister Johnson's character is his. Uh, speech about that is after he does things by himself on his own for the first time then after that he has this sort of existential crisis where he realizes that nothing ever gets better and it never gets any worse and he misses Mm -hmm. both and he says both it's not that he just wants things to get better but like nothing changes and that that uh that's not uh you know really what drives humans or what brings meaning and purpose and so many of the things that we you know look for in our mm-hmm. well-being yeah and I, and I, and they jeff daniels does a really good job of of embodying and living that um bit of dialogue in later scenes like he doesn't like he's upset that they smash the window of the shop but he's like nah it's okay i'll clean it up you know, he he he's living that piece of dialogue. And I think that's some really great acting and also some really, um, really uh, uh, fantastic screenwriting um, because it pulls that it pulls that bit of detail back. Right. Yeah, I think he really his character really gives the narrative for how how repressive the how repressive Pleasantville is, right? Even though it yeah. seems like he should be happy, right? He runs the fun hamburger joint, this and that. But yeah. the fact that they're stuck in these roles, even if it's an ostensibly a good role, the, that's restrictive. And, and so he sort of narrates what that does to him, that he's he's yeah. waiting all year for this one moment. Uh, and yeah, and that's just rough. how sad that is. Yeah, it, like just hearing that, like this is the one day that keeps me going. It's just like, oh my god, man! <laughs> just to do that art, and you get to see um, his art evolve too uh, throughout the movie. Like the first time you see him painting, it's on just like a a piece of of um, uh, I guess poster board or canvas or something like that, and then you see the big old thing on the window, and it's great. And then he transitions to um, his own uh, Titanic-style uh, painting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's fun, kind of funny because Titanic came out in 1997, and this came out in 1998, so I think that's pretty interesting. But um, you don't... Uh, it, it's not the same level. Uh, as Titanic, but it is a piece of um, porn- pornography, and the town does not like that. They are not fans of that. So <laughs> that brings us to um, our last major piece for this film, a, a major theme in psychological constructs. 
uh, for this film. And it has a lot to do with a recent episode of the podcast as well. Uh, the X-Men series, the X-Men franchise one. Uh, this has a great allegory in it um, and uh, metaphorical experience of racial and LGBT issues of the show's time period and then even the time period in the very beginning of the movie and the very end of the movie in the 1990s. Uh, so, um, Will, do you want to take us take us through though that allegory the, or those allegories? Yeah, well, so I think first you can't help but mention that the movie explores these things without having any visibly queer characters and no people of color. Right. And yet it's touching on these themes. And so that's right. uh, a really interesting thing to try to do. I think mm -hmm. we, uh, I don't think you could, you could get away with that now with an all white no. cast like that, but uh, it certainly uh -uh. was an interesting choice at the time. Uh, right. I think it was uh, a, a choice that may not have gotten too many raised eyebrows to be honest with you late late 90s hollywood um definitely didn't care so it's good to know that some things can change and do change <laughs> yeah, while exactly. we're talking about things that don't <laughs> uh, so that is something that you know has changes we do you know recognize these things a bit more and people at least are a little more outraged when uh, there's not representation so that's something yeah. we'll we'll take it um but yeah, so it does that. It does this without that. And so it does this through the use of this color metaphor that we're never quite sure exactly what right. it's a metaphor for. And so I think it's just a metaphor for many things and sure. different things at different points. Right? We've talked about it in relation to sexuality, but then it's also mm -hmm. clearly a, a metaphor for race and segregation. And they yeah. can, again are not subtle about that with the signs they put up saying no, no colors allowed. Right. And, uh, you know, you could have probably found that sign in a museum and repurposed it for this movie because of just how stark it was from a historical point of view. Like it was just it stares you in the face. No colors allowed. Um, and so very, very prov provocative um, from get on Gary Ross's part, because like you said, no visibly queer characters in the movie. All relationships are um, expressed as a as as straight as possible. Um, and although there, I believe there is a mention on of, of some um, at maybe kissing uh, between two girls or two women or something like that. Oh, I, I missed that. I think there is a very quick mention, but I could be wrong about that. Um, it just it's it kind of struck me so. Um, I wish I had written it down when I when I when that struck me. I was like, "Mom, oh, that's an odd phrasing." Um, but then um, the thing that just blows my mind on the use of coloreds is that there are no um, no people of color in and and especially no um, uh, African Americans in the in the movie at all. Like, not one scene. Not even in the nineteen nineties. No, they don't even have any when they show the high school. Right. Uh, this not like it's mind blowing. Uh, it's that that they they got away with that, but I mean that makes the movie quite a bit more provocative, specifically on this um, on this allegory. 
Yeah, so I think it's really interesting to think about. I mean, so certainly that's problematic, but you know, given that that's the film, I think it's interesting to think about. You know, what that choice sort of says that right that that Pleasantville that that's not pleasant. That wouldn't that wouldn't be represented in Pleasantville, even though a town like that at the time that this would have been you know modeled after right. What, what led what would have led to the beautiful grounds outside of the courthouse would have been people of color's labor doing the kind of work to keep the town idyllic but pleasantville you know that's not visible at all that's not right. there and so i think it's interesting to think about how if this was made today how those roles would be worked into the movie and what additional commentary could be had by that like what yeah. would this coming of color look like for people of color in Pleasantville and what kind of agency would they gain and what could the world look like after that if right. they were there as well from the start? Yeah, that's a I I think much like um much like Twelve Angry Men was remade in the nineteen nineties to reflect a, a different um criminal justice system. Uh, that isn't reflected well in the 1957 version. Uh, I think Pleasantville could and should be remade. I mean, as somebody who doesn't like a lot of remakes because they mess stuff up, I I think it would be worth a shot to do exactly what you just said. Yeah, I think. Incorporate some of these newer themes and or... Uh, or uh, newer experiences and or in, you know, five or 10 years, what whatever those um, whatever those experiences uh, are um, or will be. Right. So um, you you had written a note. I want to go ahead and leave this last bit. You had written the note um, of coming out and I would like you to explain uh, the this this coming out note here. Oh, yeah. So I think I think what I'm. One of my favorite scenes, and I feel like I keep saying this, but one of honestly <laughs> one of my favorite scenes, because my other favorite character after Mr. Johnson is is uh, Betty, and in part because uh-huh. of her relationship with him. But right. uh, when she first changes color, right, she's really not ready to be out yet. And I think uh, for me, that's really a poignant thing as someone who mm-hmm. struggled with identity things in their own life sure. and coming out that for her, she's not, you know, she's not ready for that yet. She's really afraid of the reactions uh-huh. of others. And so but uh david helps her cover that back up with her makeup and so you know as much as you know often being in the closet is considered mm-hmm. not a good thing that's really a, a loving moment between the two of them where he really helps her feel safe and she's she's yeah. not she's just not ready yet are you okay you all right what am i going to do Go out there this way. How can I go out there this way? Look at me. It's okay. It's all right. Betty? Have you got any makeup? In my handbag? Give me your cheek. Here, give me the other. There. 
good. I left your town. Is it working? Yes. Does it look okay? Uh, and then there's sort of the opposite scene that then occurs afterward with Mr. Johnson, where he takes that makeup back off and really right. wants to see the real her, tells her that she shouldn't cover that up. And that's really mm-hmm. her coming out when she starts to feel uh, safe with this new identity. Uh, yeah. It's really because of his support that she's ready to uh, face that and then and then after that she's really empowered and she doesn't she's not going to put the makeup back on uh right. george the husband you know tells her she's going to put makeup on and they're going to go to this meeting and she says yeah. i'm not doing that and that's right. I think, a really powerful uh, moment there and so I, I just like the whole sequence of it i think it really yeah. speaks to a lot of the you know the research that i do that has been about uh coming out and about how mm-hmm. you know a lot of the early work on coming out was that it, you know, it's always a good thing to do. We should really be, you know, being out is good. And I, I do think that it's, you know, it's good to be yourself and to be authentic, sure. but there are places yeah. where that's safe and there's places where that's not safe. Right. Um, right. It takes a lot of support to yeah. be safe and to be ready to face the things that aren't safe in the world. And so I think that that really illustrates that nicely. And it's because of the support that both uh, David gives her in in supporting her and not being ready, and then uh, Mr. Johnson in really loving her for who she is. That gives her yeah. that power to walk away from George and to stand up to that. Right. So, uh, I, I was going to add, yeah, to walk to just not fall back into a, a rhythm at the end of the at the end of the narrative. Be like, no, I'm 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 actually going to be I'm moving on. Sorry. Um, and she does it so gracefully and and kindly almost that yeah she yeah she, she feels, really says no this is what i'm doing and she doesn't yeah you know tell him everything he's done wrong she's just like i'm not i'm not coming back like yeah this is over now and, yeah um and i mean he'll have to understand it of course but i i, I did want to add um it, and it's such a beautiful sequence it's it, it is my favorite sort of um um in it interpersonal character uh development in the film but the thing that like hits me is um that he's doing this for a woman he doesn't know you know within the context of the the plot but he is supporting her in the same way that he wants to support his own mother and then does so at the end of the movie when she um is dumped by uh her boyfriend whoever she was seeing at the time um because you know they have a broken home they don't that their dad's not there uh and so and and he won't take them for that weekend or whatever so uh it was a it was a really poignant connection juxtaposition for that because he was like i'm i'm just gonna help this woman who is going to be a proxy for my mother and I thought that was very beautiful. Um, even uh, and and then adding the whole coming out part at, uh, from Betty's perspective, I think just makes that whole thing super wonderful. 
Yeah, and so then once again, it's you know, she, although she, it's not an LGBTQ story, it right. sort of is one at the same the same time. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, and and I <clears throat> I didn't um, I I caught the the glimpses of it, but I didn't fe- I didn't feel it the same way as you just described it because uh, I don't I've, I haven't had that experience. So, um, but now that you've said it, I think that just makes it even even more wonderful. It's great. Um, and I think that's a wonderful place to end our discussion, uh, because it's, it's on a high note. We can end on yeah. a high note, right? Um, one of the things that, uh, we didn't have time to discuss, but if you have any thoughts, um, uh, lovely faithful listeners, if you have any thoughts, tweet us at SinSciPod or find us on Facebook, uh, at fb.com slash sinsipod I don't know exactly just find us on our socials you can find them everywhere uh, but one of the things that we didn't get to talk about was the um, the psychology of color it's obviously there were um, reasons why certain things were um, colored first colorized first before other things um, and we don't really have any logic to that but there are some interesting visual uh, metaphors and and easter eggs and things like that and and I think it's great um and it's you just just uh to to put a cherry on that top I I love the blood uh that you wrote down will blood when bud punch, punches whitey um and he gets the blood on his face and it's great you know it's just like ooh red something behind that let us know i want to thank will ryan for joining me to discuss pleasantville while saying goodbye will uh is there anything you'd like to plug i always like to give my guests something um that they can add at the end here because you know it's fun sharing uh where can folks find out about uh your work I don't have much to plug. I don't have a Twitter or anything, but I guess if you really want to uh, know more about my work, you can uh, see my website. It's willsryan.com. Uh, so www.willsryan.com. There's a lot of William Ryans in the world, so it's tough to uh, yeah, make a donation. I feel you, dude. A domain. I feel you. <laughs> so, right. Uh, right. I, don't, uh, I, don't have a, I don't have a Twitter because I'm not sure I could be trusted with one. <laughs> It's it's not some moral stance about, you know, not wanting to be on social media. It's it's only that I'm not sure I could handle it. So, yeah, that's fair. That's totally fair. I don't know if I can handle it most of the time. It's a it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, And I will link uh, you all to will s Ryan dot com on the uh, main show notes and things like that. So you can catch it there. It'll be available um wherever you get your uh podcast you can you can check that out and so that's going to do it for this episode until the next one thanks for listening